Welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. I'm Darby Toth, a technical field services representative with Western United Dairies. This week's episode includes a 2022 labor update with Anthony Ramundo, as well as an ARB update with Paul Souza, our Director of Environmental Services and Regulatory Affairs. We also have a market update with our partners over at Blimling. Let's jump right into this week's episode. Hi, this is Kathleen Wolfley from Blooming & Associates filling in for Tiffany Lamandola this week. It was a volatile week in dairy with markets falling early on in the week only to bounce back to finish. CME spot blocks closed the week at $2.30 per pound, up $0.02 cents, to the highest levels going back to 2020. Barrels closed at $2.25 per pound, mostly unchanged. Butter and powder prices were steady to lower, with CME non-fat dry milk values holding at $1.85 per pound, while butter dropped to $2.71, down $0.09 cents on the week. In general, our sense is that dairy markets remain fundamentally supported, with milk production still falling behind last year's levels and pretty solid domestic and export demand keeping product moving. So there's still plenty of outlets for the product that we are making. However, outside markets do appear to be influencing market action, particularly in the futures market. Major declines in the grain markets early on this week on easing tensions between Ukraine and Russia spilled over into the dairy complex. That sent Q3 class three prices down 80 cent from Friday's close to Tuesday's close. And on the class four side of things, Q3 class four values dropped nearly 60 cents between Friday and Tuesday. Markets did ultimately recover heading into the weekend. Q3 class three values finished at $24 a hundred weight down just 22 cents on the week and Q3 class four prices closed at 25 bucks a hundred weight, 11 cents lower on the week. In addition to geopolitical noise, USDA's prospective plantings report kept the grain markets on a volatile ride. USDA estimates producers will plant 89.5 million acres of corn this crop year, down from 93 million acres last year and below pre-report expectations. Soybean acres, on the other hand, came in at 91 million acres, up from 87 million acres last year, but that was within pre-report expectations. Next week brings another GDT auction, so stay tuned. Have a great weekend. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pge.com safety. I am happy to welcome back Paul Souza to the episode today. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Yeah, thank you for having me, Melissa. Always great to be on Scene and Heard and to update uh, our members and our listeners. Well, today, speaking of updates, Paul, um, we had you on last week to talk a little about, bit about an upcoming meeting at ARB that was in regards to dairies receiving GHG credits for um, projects that they implemented. And that workshop happened last week. You were a panelist for one of the discussions. And we're just wondering, Paul, if you could give us a little bit of an update. I listened in for a bit and was I was pretty proud of our industry and all the work we've done after listening in, but maybe you can share a little bit of an update from your perspective about how it went and what we can expect since that meeting. 
Sure. Um, I'll kind of go through the agenda um, as kind of you know what was said, but um, kind of to set the framework again, like I said uh, last time, the reason for the meeting was that uh, some environmental justice uh, groups submitted a petition to the California Air Resources Board to not allow uh, dairies and livestock to uh, gain low carbon fuel standard credits uh, for digesters. Um, that petition was denied by the Air Resources Board. Uh, these environmental justice groups showed up to the January board meeting and made a big stink about it. And so this meeting was the direct result of that to continue the dialogue, to get into the details, um, you know, to talk it out, to give the environmental justice groups, uh, dairy groups, California Air Resources Board an opportunity to discuss this, this issue. And so that's important as the foundation um, to know, you know, this is the reason for the meeting. And so for those dairies that have digesters and are using the low carbon fuel standard, um, potentially this could have a big impact on them. Now, there was no decision. This wasn't a um, board meeting, you know, with a decision or a vote at the end of it. It was just a, a, a dialogue and a discussion on a topic uh, that's recently been in front of the board and the denial of that petition by the environmental justice group. So I kind of wanted to start there, setting the foundation for the meeting. Um, you know, you obviously have concerns. This is being done to appease um, the environmental justice advocates um, who clearly showed themselves, I think, in this meeting as anti-dairy advocates uh, or activists. There is um, no pleasing them, um, you know, listening to reason. Uh, I think they really worked against uh, the state's goals of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. They're not interested in that, uh, in having the dairy industry reduce its emissions. It was, um, from their perspective, you know, there was, it was confrontational, but, um, you know, the California Air Resources Board, um, the others that were on the agenda, and, you know, the California dairy uh, families that participated, um, I, you know, I, I think had a, a great um, story to tell of the accomplishments that we're making and the great things that we are doing in complying with uh, the mandates for uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions in California. Absolutely. From, from my perspective, Paul, and this might be controversial to say on a public podcast, but there are definitely entities out there who don't care how much we can do to reduce our emissions or our environmental footprint in any way. They simply want to see dairies go out of business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I, they sort of disguise that, I think. And you yes. you and I have talked extensively about this, but when it comes down to situations like this, it's pretty obvious what their agenda is. Yeah, yeah, and this meeting made it pretty obvious. I, I would go a step further, uh, you know, not only are they not interested in us meeting our objectives, they actually want to stand in the way. Yes. Um, you know, there is legislation, uh, 1383, uh, that requires us to reduce our manure methane emissions, and we are making tremendous progress on that. And that frustrates dairy environmental justice groups or these anti-dairy activists that we may actually achieve our goals. And that's a problem for them. Um, they would rather us not meet our goals and then find ourselves in an enforcement, uh, right. you know, litigated, you know, we could be sued for not meeting our goals. And so I think it's very frustrating to them to see um, the progress we're making. And so it's not only, you know, that they just want to get rid of, they, or that they don't, you know, they, they want to stand in the way of us meeting our goals. They actually want to yeah. block uh, the possibility of us doing that. So with that, I think I'll jump into the agenda, unless you've got any other um, insights to start to go through. I think that's my only soapbox for this morning. <laughs> okay. So uh, 
The meeting started off with uh, the California Air Resources Board staff going over the statutory requirements for death, uh, dairy methane emission reductions. And this is basically 1383, as I was just discussing, right. um, that requires a 40% reduction. Um, and, the, and the CARB gave their view, not our view of this, and we disagree a little bit on that, but um, it requires a 40% reduction um, in methane emissions from the livestock industry by 2030 from a 2013 baseline. And so that set the stage of you know, what, uh, where we're going and, and what all of this discussion is about. Uh, from there, we jumped into an overview of dairies in California, I think very important. Um, we got a presentation from uh, William Hohenstein uh, from the US Department of Agriculture um, talking about um, dairy demand, dairy production, um, showing that uh, you know, demand for dairy products are increasing, um, kind of showing some trends in the industry um, typical economic things that we see and that we get updates at our board meeting about, um, but it was more general trends about demand for dairy products uh, in the United States, and we see that demand increasing, and that was clear. Then we had um, somebody from CDFA, uh, Amrith Gunasankara, who is the science advisor to the secretary and also um, a big part of the uh, dairy digester uh, program and the alternative manure management program at CDFA, talk about uh, dairy operations and manure management in California, and, and also their programs and what their programs have accomplished to date, which has been truly an incredible uh, feat in the last five years, um, you know, in, in reducing our manure methane emissions. Um, next, we had uh, Dr. Deanne Meyer from UC Davis talking about environmental impacts from dairies. Um, you know, if dairies are not managed properly, there is potential uh, for impacts and, um, you know, how to mitigate those. Uh, next, we had uh, several environmental regulators uh, that regulate dairy. Uh, Ramon Norman from the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District went through air permitting requirements. Uh, and Patrick Palupa, the executive officer of the Central Valley Regional Water Quality Control Board, went through their regulatory process at the Central Valley Water Board, how dairies are regulated, what the regulations are, right. um, you know, what dairies have to do to follow those. And then uh, we had uh, Michael Washam, who's Assistant Director um, of the Economic and Development Planning uh, Resource Management Agency at Tulare County, talking about a local, you know, county experience uh, with these issues. So, you know, the regulations that uh, Tulare County has on dairies, he talked about there are no new dairies, um, you know, being built in Tulare County, and that's important because that is one of the arguments that the anti-dairy activists are making is that digesters are um, creating a gold rush and uh, a boom <laughs> in uh, dairy expansion and dairy construction. And so, uh, you know, he made that clear that in Tulare County, the biggest county, dairy county in the United States, uh, we were not seeing new dairies. And he thanked uh, the dairy industry and, and CDFA and others that are working on this uh, because of the digesters that have gone into Tulare County, it's helping them meet their greenhouse gas emission goals uh, for Tulare County. So he was very thankful for that. Next, um, and feel free to jump in anytime, sure. Melissa, if you have any questions. Um, the, the order got a little bit messed up, but I'm gonna go according to uh, the agenda. There was um, a community perspectives on dairies. So two residents of uh, local communities in Merced County, mm -hmm. one of them Santanella and the other one Planada spoke about um, their personal experience with dairies and you know uh, complaints about odors and flies and oh. Um, dairies shouldn't be allowed, you know, and 
to grow and to be in the valley and that, uh, you know, obviously the typical things, it's hard to listen to, um, but, um, you know, so, you know, they got their opportunity to speak and just, um, and it was, these were community members uh, that spoke, you know, about how dairy was impacting their lives and their communities. Although the one in Santanella said she lived near the O'Neill Forbay, and I'm not aware of any dairies near the O'Neill Forbay, but um, either way, she was really aggrieved by uh, dairies um, in her uh, community and in, in the Central Valley in general. Sure. Uh, did um, Paul did the dairy industry have any public, you know, pro dairy commenters speaking about the positives of dairy? That's good. Absolutely. So that was part of our um, podcast last week, and there were others That's also. Right. Um, you know, we knew there was going to be this negative, um, you know, comment. Um, and so there were a lot of positive comments. Dairy producers really stepped up and um, spoke on behalf of the dairy industry and, you know, setting the record straight. Um, yeah. That was important to have uh, truthful, accurate information. And uh, there were a number of dairy producers and dairy producer representatives, both that spoke on the panels and that provided comments during the comment periods to help balance uh, the conversation because yeah. clearly the, the you know, the conversation from the uh, anti-dairy activists is uh, we don't like dairies and we want to see them disappear. Um, and, you know, and, and we had talked about this also, uh, not very factually based. And they took facts and, you know, they would start out with something that was true. And then by the end of the conversation, it was completely off reality. And so uh, there were dairy producers that spoke and dairy and allied industry uh, that helped set the record straight. That was important to be able to do that. Good. I, I, not to get on too far of a tangent, but um, with our own issues we're dealing with up in the Point Reyes seashore and several communities in the North Coast, I always find interesting how um, public commenters come on and it turns out they probably actually don't have experience with dairies nearby. Some of the things they say, as you mentioned, aren't factually correct. And I find it sad that that's where we're, we've landed, but um, I guess it's good to hear that there was, there's some positive pro-dairy discussion also happening. Yeah. Actually, I, I want to, I didn't start off with this, but that's a very good point. I would say the meeting as a whole, I was um, concerned going into this, but the meeting as a whole was very positive because, you know, we have a legislative mandate and we are moving in strides to meet that um, mandate. I mean, it, it really, the progress is amazing. And so, um, you know, even the regulators you know, acknowledge that, you know, we're, we're not sitting on our hands, right. we're not sitting back, we are achieving the goals that are being laid out for us. Uh, and then the industry obviously, you know, had a, a positive message of where we're going. Um, overall, the meeting was very positive. And, you know, the little bit that the anti-dairy activists put into it, it, it was clear, I mean, their intent became clear when you got this meeting and you see, you know, California Air Resources Board, talking, the water board talking, the air district talking about, um, you know, here's all the things you have to jump through in order to permit a dairy or a dairy expansion or a digester. Yeah. And, you know, then the, the anti-dairy activists are saying, you know, it's the wild west and dairies can do whatever they, they right. want to. And that's just not true. So I would, the overall um, perception of the entire meeting was a very positive one. The dairy industry has targets that we have to meet. We are moving rapidly towards meeting those targets. Um, and, you know, I'd say that was the, and there's some folks that, you know, don't like that we're doing that. That was the overall gist of the meeting 
kind of overall. Good. So I'll jump into the next yeah. session after the community perspectives. Um, was perspectives on the future of dairies in California. And this is um, the one that I spoke at. Um, first, we had Phoebe Seaton from Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability. And I, I'm very summarizing her uh, presentation, but mm -hmm. my, my take on her presentation was basically, she sees a future of dairies 50 years ago. You know, the future, okay. if you go back 50 years in time, um, you know, the size of the dairies and the way dairies were operated, that's what I take from her presentation. They want to see us go back to um, that model. Um, small dairies, um, just, you know, the, the way things were 50 years ago is, is what, I, and I don't know if that was genuine, uh, but that was kind of the impression I generally got from her presentation. Then I gave a presentation um, and I looked at the trends. I mean, it was a, the question put me was, where does the dairy industry look like in 20 years? And for 50 years, we've been seeing a trend of um, fewer dairies in California and the United States and larger herd sizes. Um, and that was basically, I looked at the past trends and I projected that those trends will continue. Um, I said, that's not my desire. It really is not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know a lot of great people in the industry that have gone out that I wish hadn't and were still hanging in there. Um, it, you know, it wasn't my wish for the future. It was, um, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. And I said that. And so you look at 50 years worth of trends and I don't see anything in the industry um, that is going to train change those um, trends that have been going on since before I was around. Uh, right. And that will likely continue. And I think every the writing's on the wall that those things are going to continue. Um, there's more regulation, um, always, you know, evolving. Uh, Groundwater Sustainability Management Act, the Sigma. Um, there's a lot of pressures that I see that are actually, you know, wouldn't allow that trend to turn around as much as I would like it to. Um, yeah. That trend is going to continue. And that was my, that was basically the bottom line of my presentation. And that's, you know, that's kind of to counter, uh, again, this digester gold rush, dairies are growing because of yes. digesters. Well, yeah. dairies have been growing for 50 years. Digesters have only been on dairies in the last, you know, a couple of them in the last 20 years, years. last yeah. five years is when it's really taken off um, and the trends aren't changing. So right. um, digesters really are not affecting that trend. Yeah. So next we went into an overview of dairy methane emission reduction technologies. Um, kind of some different ways that dairies are reducing their emissions and potentially will in the future. Uh, first, we had uh, Dr. Alexander Histeroff uh, from Penn State talking about enteric methane emissions and, um, you know, additives that you can feed to cows to reduce uh, methane and a lot of um, kind of, you know, caveats and concerns. A lot of these things haven't been well studied. Um, they have some negative impacts like on milk production, animal health. Uh, you really got to be careful with these things. They are really being pushed right now. And there are folks that don't want to wait for the science. Um, you know, we, we've got to get these things onto dairies and get them fed to cows before mm -hmm. we truly know, um, you know, their full impacts of that. And he was, you know, you, cautious about before you go feed something to animals, you got to know what's going to happen. Um, right. One, one example that really stuck out in my mind, he talked about multiple things, but one of them was feeding uh, seaweed to cows Yes. and uh, testing for the amount of iodine and bromine in milk. Yeah. And the cows fed uh, the seaweed had a like a 20 time increase in the amount of iodine and bromine in the milk. Now, I don't know that there's any 
negative impacts of that. Iodine is a human, um, you know, vitamin. We eat it in our multi multivitamins and it's yeah. added to salt. Uh, but you kind of got to know, you know, if you're feeding something to cows and it's going to change milk that much, you kind of got to know what's going to happen with that. What, you know, sure. is that doing something to the animal? Is that going to do something to the consumer? Um, that was one thing that really stuck out in my mind about um, things you got to watch out for, the unintended consequences as you're going down this road. Yes. Yeah. So next we had uh, Mark Storman uh, from uh, Nutrient um, talking about manure methane emission reduction strategies. And this is more, um, you know, digesters, separators, uh, that kind of thing. Nutrient has a great technology catalog where they kind of do a consumer reports on different manure technologies. And so he talked about, you know, their review process and how they review technologies and how folks can, um, you know, check that out and see um, what impacts those technologies have. They have it broken down by nitrogen, you know, how well that technology addresses nitrogen, how well it addresses phosphorus, how well it addresses odor, how well it addresses greenhouse gas emissions. So if you're interested in, um, let's say, you know, a separator from some company, you can go onto the nutrient uh, website and look at, um, you know, what does this technology do? I'm worried about phosphorus, for example, if that's what you were back on the East Coast, uh, you can see, well, this technology does something for phosphorus. Okay, great. It, you know, it helps solve that problem, but maybe it has another problem in another area that, well, um, I, you know, I, 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 I want to avoid that or, you know, maybe I can deal with that in another way. So that was good. Um, and then the California Air Resources Board staff went over on research efforts on dairy methane um, that they're doing. And so a lot of measurement things, they're driving vehicles on roads that have methane sensors, they're flying airplanes over statewide, over landfills and over, um, you know, oil production facilities and dairies mm -hmm. uh, measuring methane emissions. And they kind of went over some of that. Okay. Uh, next, we had Jeannie Merrill from the California Climate Action or Climate Ag Network um, going over uh, compost application and uh, pasture-based stra uh, strategies as a way to reduce um, methane emissions. And then we had a speaker on um, dairy product alternatives, um, you know, like oh. oat milk. Um, everybody, if everybody <laughs> just switched to oat milk, um, we would solve all of our problems, um, except, you know, as a father um, who counts a lot on the nutrition of milk for his yeah. children, I wouldn't feel as good giving oat milk to my children when they're picky and refuse to eat their dinner. And instead, I, you know, they have a glass of milk and I feel, you know, hey, they got some nutrition out of that meal, even though they didn't yeah. eat anything. Um, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to place a glass of oat milk in front of them and say, well, you know, that's what you get for your dinner. Um, so yeah. it, it's, they're not equal. Um, no, there's definitely a, a group out there pushing that agenda that if we just switch to things like that, um, everything would be great. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because basically we're, we have this whole external discussion in the world about nutrition and the value of like good whole nutrition that's, you know, dense and um, with nutrients and more bang for your buck, so to speak, when it comes to the nutrients. And then we have a whole group of people pushing these products, which in some cases are good substitutes, certainly for people who have a dairy issue, but they do not, as you mentioned, replace the nutrient value of milk. And I don't know, I think they're pretty gross too, but they're just packed full of sugars and emulsifiers and all sorts of other things that, that you know, probably detract from any nutritional value they'd bring. So yeah. I appreciate your perspective as a dad on that, Paul. And 
yeah. you know, aside from all the other issues about amount of arable land, we have to farm these products and whatnot. I, I think it's, it's definitely an interesting discussion we found ourselves yeah. in in 2022. Yeah, that one as a father is a real one. I've got uh, a picky nine-year-old who, you know, sometimes looks at something and says he doesn't like it and he hasn't tasted it. And boy, getting him to eat it is near impossible. Um, you know, and it, you feel bad as a parent. You want your kid to eat, and but he loves milk and he has a full glass of milk. Right. You know, I, at least for that meal he got, I know he got, you know, protein, calcium, uh, a lot of the nutrients he needs, yep. even though it wasn't ideal. It would have been nice if he ate his dinner and uh, drank his glass of milk, but it, at least he got something out yeah. of that. So um, that, that is, you know, that's dear to my heart because it really is something that I am uh, dealing with and I see that value. And just knowing that nutrient value of something like oat milk, um, you know, I would not feel the same um, if I gave him a glass of oat milk as that replacement for his dinner. Definitely. So uh, next we jumped into uh, uh, a session on dairy digester development and installation. Um, we had uh, Nick Elger with um, the US EPA AgStar program um, talking about um, the efforts they make <clears throat> to um, promote dairy digesters and uh, reduce manure methane emissions across the country. Then we had an overview on digester operations in uh, California dairy farms by Neil Black uh, with California Bioenergy. This was interesting. I mean, kind of you know, getting into the details of clusters and um, what they've been able to accomplish and being able to reach smaller dairies if they're, you know, part of a cluster. Um, you know, it's, it's what we're actually seeing on the ground in California. Right. Next, we had uh, David DeGroot, who's a civil engineer with Four Creeks Engineering, um, who did an overview on environmental protections for California digesters. And mm -hmm. uh, this one was interesting, um, you know, a little bit dry for what it really is. Uh, but when you look at what it takes to permit a digester, yeah. the agencies that are involved, I mean, and it, you know, it can be a over a year process with, uh, you know, half a dozen agencies or more um, commenting and being involved in this. You do CEQA, you have community outreach meetings, local county uh, planning, uh, water board, air board, air district, um, all these things that you've got, you know, you, you can't build a digester you know, under the, just willy-nilly under the radar, there is a lot you have to do and check in with all these agencies. Um, it was when you, you know, uh, mentioned sobering. earlier, Paul, that, that they were calling the digesters a gold rush to the California dairy industry. This topic is immediately where my mind went because anybody who thinks building anything might cause a gold rush in California hasn't had to permit probably even a, you know, minor shed on their property lately. It's just, it's a huge undertaking just to get basic permits, and these are certainly more than basic. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, th you know, that made it clear uh, that there's just um, a lot you have to go through and a lot of oversight, a lot of public input, public input at every step. Sure. Um, there's that opportunity. And that's just California law and federal law um, just requires it. That's how it is, as you said. Um, if you want to do something, uh, boy, you got to have the stomach to, you know, the cost and the time that it takes before yeah. you can break a shovel full of dirt um, is substantial and you got to be aware of those things. Yep. So next we went into uh, dairy methane mitigation funding and economics um, with Sam Wade from the Coalition for Renewable Natural Gas um, talked about, you know, funding and how that works. 
Um, we had Aaron Smith from UC Davis um, mm. with a topic on what's worth more, a cow's milk or its poop. Um, and it's interesting because he had some numbers that uh, were basically showing that um, you know the digester revenue was rivaling uh, milk income. But uh, he made some assumptions on digester revenue that I, you know, there were a lot of people that didn't agree with. Um, and I, so, you know, he had some numbers up there for what those revenues are. I had looked at some of those uh, because I've given presentations on digesters and he was right. coming up with, um, you know, revenues that were three to four times what I had come up with uh, for dairy digesters. And so it looked uh, kind of fed into that whole gold rush mentality. I think it's important to, you know, look at the numbers when you're speaking on something like this, um, that, you know, you're accurate and, and providing good information um, as a, a perspective for how we move forward. And then uh, in this session, we had two dairy producers talking on their uh, perspectives on dairy management. Um, our member, uh, Joey Oroso from Oroso Dairy and mm -hmm. uh, Diana Giacomini-Hagen from the Giacomini Dairy, both of them uh, are members. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they made that connection. Uh, dairies are family operations. Uh, yes. they're, they're, you know, this mega dairy corporate uh, thing that was being portrayed by anti-dairy anti activists uh, just isn't true. Uh, both of them expressed frustration, uh, especially interesting the Giacomini dairy, which is a smaller dairy, much smaller than California average herd size. Yeah. Um, they tried to do something on their farm uh, in Marin County uh, with their dairy digester, and they were opposed by uh, these environmental justice groups. And they were, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to improve the environment. And who goes to stand in the way but environmental justice groups express both of them express that kind of frustration about trying to do the right thing and finding who's standing in their way is the people who are claiming to want to protect the environment. Uh, very interesting, very personal. Um, I think they did a great job of really representing the dairy industry and, you know, showing who we really are. We are real people uh, working on our farms, um, you know, that both of them were third or fourth generation, um, you know, really been in this for a long time, really have a commitment to it. Um, I think they did a great job. Uh, next, there was a summary of the uh, Dairy and Livestock Greenhouse Gas Emissions Working Group. Um, this was something that was created by SB 1383, that there had to be a discussion around this. I was a co-chair of one of those work groups. And so we went through a summary of all that that you know, had done, uh, talking about research and markets for um, markets for, you know, like alternative manure management products, like manure uh, and potentially credits for alternative manure management projects, and then credits for digester products and all the, the research that we need, uh, you know, still to move forward on um, how we improve the environmental impacts of these things. Um, and so, you know, that was all out on the table and discussed back then. And then there was a summary of that here. Uh, there was an overview of the low carbon fuel standard program uh, and dairy pathways by uh, CARB staff next. Uh, and that was fascinating. Um, you know, a little bit of a kind of a nerdy thing, I guess. Uh, you know, I, re I realized the value of the LCFS uh, in helping us achieve our goals. And so uh, it was a very detailed dive into how that works um, and that dairy is a small part of the LCFS. I'd kind of known this, but I hadn't seen it in a chart. Um, biodiesel and uh, renewable diesel is, is the biggest chunk of the low carbon fuel standard and dairy biomethane really was a small piece of this, which, you know, when you hear the dairy activists, it sounds like it's all about dairy digesters when in reality, um, you know, they're just a sliver of it. So 
um, just kind of a fascinating uh, in-depth talk on low carbon fuel standards, some you know, economic discussion. Um, it was interesting to hear that presentation. Uh, and then uh, getting towards the end here, um, we had uh, kind of a, a summary um, closing uh, opportunity here, uh, considerations for methane emission reduction incentives and regulations. Um, you know, that basically um, th there were two people that spoke, one for dairy and one against dairy. And um, the dairy perspective was that um, we're, you know, we're being successful, we're on the path, we're doing what the state and the legislature had asked of us, uh, it's working. Um, and, you know, then obviously the environmental perspective was, uh, you know, we need to throw the whole thing out, it's not working. Um, you know, uh, we need to move back to dairies, you know, from, um, you know, 50 years ago. And so um, just, you know, very different perspectives on that. But I think the reality of the numbers show um, we are being successful. We are moving rapidly towards our targets. Um, and the way we are doing it is working. So there were two public comment periods, one right before lunch and one at the end of the day. Um, I want to go over, you know, just a couple of these. Um, yeah. So um, there were dairy and dairy advocates that spoke um, about you know, the benefits of dairy and um, trying to set the record straight of what had been said in the day. Uh, but there were environmental justice advocates who uh, asked for a reconsideration of that LCFS petition that I talked right. early on. This meeting was the result of the denial of the LCFS petition and there were multiple commenters that said, ARB, you need to pick up that petition and you need to grant that petition. Uh, even though it's been denied and we now have this uh, meeting about it and we spoke at uh, the board hearing in January, um, just, you know, pick it up and grant us our petition. Interesting uh, even that though, it sounds like this meeting sort of made the case for the decision ARB made based on all that we're hearing from the meeting, Paul. So funny, I guess these commenters have their comments preloaded and they're just going to give them no matter what. But it is interesting that like as we walk through this meeting, it sounds like it really makes sense that the petition was denied and that we keep that LCFS credit for dairy biomethane. But um, we're still kind of towing that line in the EJ community that they don't like. It's just, I guess, as we've said, it's just kind of their position and that's what they're going to stick to. But I'm glad to hear that it sounds like a good strong case was made for the denial of that petition. Yeah, yeah and that's that's a very good point. You're absolutely right. Um, and that case was reiterated. Uh, this meeting was from nine to five. I, didn't, I don't know if I mentioned that before. It was a full day meeting. Yeah, uh, as you can see, I've spent a time going through the agenda yeah. uh, and each of these people were speaking for uh, you know 10 to 20 minutes. Uh, it was a full day of presentations. Uh, and you kind of get the, the, the gist from the agenda um, it really did support, and you know, in a good, in, a, in an appropriate way, supported ARB's uh, decision to deny the petition. Um, you know, they're on a path. Um, they they have a target, and they're on a path. Um, the the mechanism and the path is working. Um, what the dairy environmental justice folks want would derail. I mean, as I said earlier, the issue is that what they really want is they want to derail our progress, uh, so that we're left in a situation where. We haven't met our target. Um, you know, we're subject to enforcement. We're subject to lawsuits because, look, these guys didn't do anything. Um, and so uh, that's the bottom line. They're really looking to derail um, the progress that we're making. So um, 
there was, you know, multiple comments saying, look, just grant our, pick up our petition and just grant it, even though you've denied it already. And yeah, we had a full day meeting showing that um, this is working, but let's just, you know, throw the whole thing out. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was, you know, comments on the uh, Digester Gold Rush that we talked about. And then um, there was this interesting um, kind of thing that happened. Uh, there was several people from Iowa in the comment section, both in the morning and at uh, the end of the day, um, it was kind of strange um, talking about don't give LCFS credits to dairies outside of California. Um, oh. Dairies in Iowa are not regulated for water quality the way they are in California. And so it was this kind of strange, uh, you know, you're creating issues by um, providing LCFS to dairies that are not in California and under the California regular, we talked about what it takes to build a digester in California. And, you know, there was air quality regulations and water quality regulations and all these steps you have to go through. But in some other states, they don't have those. If you wanna build a, de a, a dairy or a digester, you get a building permit and you go. Uh, and so it was just an interesting dynamic. Um, it was multiple commenters. They'd kind of gotten together and uh, provided these comments. It was an interesting perspective. Um, it, it is an issue because you know, we're shipping a lot of money out of California to these other places to generate LCFS credits. And so um, there is a little bit of heartburn about that. Uh, and then, you know, hearing the residents of those states saying, hey, you're creating a problem in my state by, um, you know, sh allowing dairies not in California, not under the same regulatory scheme to participate in this. Um, it, it was kind of fascinating. And, and, you know, maybe that's where the environmental justice should be, uh, you know, focusing on, yeah. not on California dairies that have to go through all this, these hoops that we talked about earlier. And so um, that's a summary of the meeting. Um, they are going to be posting the slides for that meeting up on the Air Resources Board website. They have not yet, um, as of this morning I checked, but they should be soon. And so if folks have questions on that, if they want more detail, um, it still took me a while to get through that and I tried to kind of just skim the highlights. Um, it's you know, I, I'd be happy to talk to somebody about that and uh, provide the uh, presentations that were given. Um, but I think we're going to wrap that up there. I think I've spoken long enough on this. Yeah, it's that certainly was a long day, Paul. I tuned in for maybe an hour. I was listening and it was it was seemed really positive when I was on. I didn't realize how long the thing was scheduled for. I didn't look very closely at the agenda, but it does seem like even though it was a long day, some positive things came out of it. Um, it's always, always tough to hear the negative comments and the naysayers about dairy. Um, I do think that that's a very small part of the population. We just hear their voices magnified in meetings like this, but I have to remind myself, and you do a good job of it too, of, you know, we're doing a lot of good work. Um, we're doing a lot of good for the climate and it's, it, but it is hard to constantly just hear this barrage of negativity about, you know, what our dairy producers are doing, so. Yeah, absolutely. And you and I talk about this, you, you have to keep that in perspective. Yeah. Um, because um, the reality of what we're doing versus what we're hearing from that, you know, small group uh, don't align. And you just, you have to keep that perspective in mind as you go through. But it, it is interesting because, um, you know, the state um, really puts those environmental justice advocates on a pedestal. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that creates a, you know, a huge issue for them. They, they have climate goals and then they say, we need to listen to these people, but these people want to uh, keep us from reaching our climate goals. And it's uh, just an interesting and, and difficult situation um, 
that we're in. And so, but the, you know, but there are real challenges. The other part, you know, you, you keep a positive outlook and keep that perspective real. Uh, but they do have the ear of uh, the governor and the state legislature uh, and state regulators. Um, you know, they have to give them their ear. And so it is it is a real threat um, that we have to keep an eye on and we have to keep watchful and keep responding to. Yep, absolutely, Paul. Well, we sure thank you. And um, thanks for giving us this update today. It's a lot, but we appreciate that you're on our side and you're working on this stuff too. So big kudos to you, Paul, for sitting through all day of that. That's a, that was a long day. Yeah. Uh, as I said earlier, I mean, it is important, especially for those dairies that have a digester. Um, you know, it, it would make a big impact uh, in their ability to continue um, to achieve those reductions. And, you know, those dairies that, you know, have a digester under construction or are planning one, um, this is a, a central point of uh, being able to make those work. Good deal. Well, thanks again, Paul. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having me and uh, we'll see you next time. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with a relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. Well, I'm here again with Anthony Ramundo, our attorney at Ramundo and Miller, and we are really thankful for him taking the time to be on today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We just wrapped up a series of labor meetings in the Central Valley, and we're actually waiting on some up on the North Coast. So we thought we'd have you on to kind of give listeners an overview of what's going on in the labor world in 2022. So, yeah, so we... Um... We covered a lot of things at the meetings and there's a, a lot of material out there. Um, I would say at this moment, the number one threat to dairies in terms of labor compliance continues to be wage and hour law. We still have a lot of dairies that are on flat rate pay, pay meaning a salary or a daily rate uh, for their employees. We've got to get folks away from that because the way the law is in California now, if you pay somebody a salary or a daily rate, it will only cover their regular time hours. So as we head towards a 40-hour work week, that salary is going to be divided by 40 hours for your base hourly rate, and it will be determined that you've paid no overtime at all. None of that salary will be credited towards overtime. It'll push your hourly rate up and then create more liability for overtime. Um, we do have solutions for this. We have agreements that we use for a lot of our dairies where you could guarantee people, instead of guaranteeing them a salary, you can guarantee them a set number of hours or a number of regular hours and a number of overtime hours where you're telling the worker, we're gonna provide you with this much work. And if we don't provide you with enough work to cover these hours, we will pay you for the number of hours that we guarantee you. Um, of course, with those agreements, like with anything else, you're still gonna to have to pay additional overtime if they work more than the guarantee. But folks in my office can help you set that up. Um, meal and rest breaks continue to be a challenge on dairies. We have a lot of milkers that, um, either are unwilling to take the meal breaks or they just wanna work through and go home. Again, we've got some solutions for that. 
making sure you have good written policies, making sure you have good postings. Uh, West United Dairymen has the postings on their labor portal that you could put up all over your barn to make sure it's clear that people have their rest and meal breaks. And we're also recommending that people uh, do meal and rest break training and that they document that training. And if you don't have anybody bilingual who could do that training, um, our office can do that for you. I have a wonderful bilingual paralegal uh, who actually has a law degree and is waiting to get his, his law license. Um, and he's able to go out and do that type of training and um, get, your, get a record out there that the employees know that they are allowed to take their meal and rest breaks. They have an opportunity to take them. And if they don't take them, it's because they chose to, not because you forced them to. Now, we do have some dairies that have challenges with how to comply with meal and rest break rules. Most often, we see the issue with either dairies that have a carousel or dairies that are 3x. And we're seeing a lot of our 2x dairies converting over um, to 3x to get more production. Sometimes in those situations, like in a 3x dairy, we do hear back from workers that it's difficult for them to take that 30 meal, 30 minute meal break and still get that full that that milking done within the eight hour time frame that they have to get it done. So for those folks, you may need to have a relief procedure. A lot of dairies already have a relief procedure, but these things need to be in writing. And again, we can help you get that stuff into writing. Employee handbooks remain vital. We do a lot of employee handbooks for the industry. Our handbooks, I'm proud to say, are actually cheaper than literally everyone else out there. And you get a discount as a Western United member. Um, you need to have a handbook because it covers so many areas of compliance. And then California law, since I think 2017 or 2018, has required employers to have a written sexual harassment policy. And we are seeing these types of claims um, on the rise in the industry. So having that written policy will be very helpful for you to protect yourself and defend yourself from those claims. Arbitration agreements remain extremely important. The worst case scenario for a wage and hour case is that you get hit with a class action and or a private attorney general act case. Class actions are where one employee sues on behalf of all the other employees who have worked for you over a four year period for unpaid wages and certain penalties in the labor code that are payable directly to the employees. The Private Attorney General Act uh, concerns fines that you would normally pay to the state through the labor commissioner. They're like tickets issued by the state and fines that you would normally pay to the state. Uh, many years ago, actually when Gray Davis was still governor, California passed a law that enables employees to sue for these fines if they jump through certain hoops beforehand, like notifying the state that uh, they intend to do so and waiting a certain amount of time before they file the lawsuit. These kind of cases are really a form of legalized extortion and a lot of dairies have been hurt badly by these because even a technical violation like um, something not being correct on your check stub can result in hundreds of thousands of dollars in potential liability uh, and a costly settlement that can really hurt your business. So having arbitration agreements can help you push back on that. Um, arbitration agreements are agreements where employees agree that if they have a, a legal claim against you, instead of going to regular court, it'll go to an a private arbitrator. Um, we can also have them in those agreements give up their right to pursue a class action and take that class action threat off the table. Now, historically, the Private Attorney General Act has not been prohibited by arbitration agreements. However, the US Supreme Court has agreed to take that question up. In December, they took up a case about whether or not an arbitration act would bar a private attorney general act case in California. So we're hoping to get a favorable ruling there and expand the scope of arbitration agreements. 
Uh, at the beginning of March, unfortunately, President Biden signed a bill that pulls sexual harassment cases out of arbitration agreements. They can no longer be forced into arbitration for a sexual harassment case. Um, if, if you have an existing arbitration agreement, that's great, but you're going to need to get that updated. Please let us know. We're happy to update those arbitration agreements for you, and uh, we're going to be doing that at a highly discounted rate so you're not buying the agreement um, all over again if you've already, if you've already purchased one. Um, the other thing I really wanted to spend a minute to talk about uh, in terms of what's facing dairies is something that's now been around since about 2019 that most people are not aware of. Most people are aware that under federal law, it's actually during the Clinton administration, the federal government implemented what's called the Family and Medical Leave Act, which allows employees who meet certain requirements for qualifications in terms of how long they've worked for you, how many hours they've worked, they can take up to 12 weeks of leave, unpaid leave, for their own serious health condition or the serious health condition of a family member, and it includes providing this unpaid leave for bonding with a new baby. Um, that applies to only employers of 50 or more employees. Right after the Family and Medical Leave Act was put in place, California passed the California Family Rights Act, the CFRA, which is a mirror image with some slight differences from the FMLA, but it's the same idea. 12 weeks of unpaid leave for qualifying employees for their own serious health condition um, and the, uh, or the serious health condition of a family member and including that bonding with a new baby. Um, in 2019, California passed a bill that applied the California Family Rights Act, provided this 12 weeks of, of leave, to employers with five or more employees. So most dairies are below 50 employees and haven't had to deal with these laws in the past. Now, if you have five or more employees, you're going to have to face the possibility that you have to allow this unpaid leave. The most common scenario in which we see that in the dairy industry is the birth of a child. Um, we have forms in our office that you can use to process these leaves. And in fact, Darby and I have been talking about doing um, a series of trainings around the state to give you the details on these leaves, let you know what your rights are, when employees qualify. Um, and we're probably going to include a, a special Cracker Jack prize with that where we'll provide you with a packet of forms for free um, to help you process those leaves and comply with the law. Um, but we need to be aware that that law is out there um, and it is, is, it is an issue for us. Um, as Darby mentioned, my law firm has been somewhat rebranded. I've taken on a partner, a, a gentleman named Nate, James Miller, who's an attorney who's been working with me for a few years now. So James and I are now partners. It's the same service that you've always received. I'm still here and you can still always reach me directly or you can reach me through, uh, through Darby. You still get your free hour of service for West United members. Uh, but we just we try to make the effort to answer a lot of your, your basic questions um, really without charging you for that. And if you need to, you can always go through Darby and I'm always happy to answer her questions. And as I always tell everyone, she won't tell me who you are so I can't send you a bill if uh, she doesn't tell me who you are. We wanna make sure in all seriousness that you have us as a resource to help you with labor questions that come up. If there's a case or something that's a bigger project that we're gonna to need to charge you for, we can talk about that. But please don't be afraid to call me and, and ask questions. Darby has my cell phone number. She's free to give it out, or you can reach me through the office. We're always here to help you guys out. Um, if you want to visit our website, which is now www.ramondomiller.com, we have a free email service where we send out a lot of updates on legal issues, which was particularly helpful as things were, were changing so quickly through COVID. Um, and just to mention, 
We have the new COVID sick leave law, which is retroactive to January 1 that applies to all employers in California. It's a law that you need to be familiar with and you need to understand how to, how to process requests for sick leave. You don't have to pay it out unless the employees request it, but they can make a verbal or oral request. What the law provides is what they call two banks of sick leave. Each one of these, these banks of sick leave is 40 hours, which adds up to a total of 80 hours, but they are separate and distinct from each other. One bank of sick leave deals with when the employee or a member of their family um, is told to quarantine because of an exposure by uh, a public health official or a doctor, uh, or that's suspected that they have COVID and they're told to isolate themselves and not go to work. And that one also covers if schools shut down and they have to be home to take care of their kids because their child's school or daycare has closed. There's 40, up to 40 hours for that purpose. There's a separate 40 hours for when an employee test positive for COVID or their family member test positive for COVID and they are needed to care for that family member. Now, with that second category where there's a positive test, you are allowed to ask for documentation. With the first category, you're not allowed to ask for documentation, which is very frustrating to many employers. This law is going to expire in September, but from now until September, we need to be aware that it's out there and it's something that we need to be alert to to make sure that we comply with, particularly because you have to put that sick leave um, balance on your employees' check stubs. Um, and if you don't, there can be penalties that apply to that, and that would be an easy private attorney general act case for a, a greedy plaintiff's lawyer. So um, if you need help with that, you can always reach out to us. I have an attorney in my office who's become our COVID specialist. His name is Kevin Piercy. Darby's worked with him quite a bit. Kevin has been following all of the COVID developments from the very beginning very closely, and you're more than welcome to call the office and ask Kevin any questions that you like about COVID, about COVID sick leave, about safety in the workplace, um, and, and those types of, uh, of, of issues. Um, it's been great getting out and seeing you folks uh, out there. Again, we're hoping to get a really good turnout for these leave of absence trainings that we're planning. And of course, while I'm there, I'll be happy to answer questions on any other uh, labor issues that, that come up. Well, thanks, Tony. We really appreciate you getting out there. And, you know, you mentioned your new website where people can sign up and we'll make sure to link that in the show notes at the bottom of this podcast episode so that if listeners are interested, they can click on it and visit it right there. Great. Well, thank you for the opportunity. All right. Thanks for your time. Have a great day. Take care. Did you know that you can turn your dairy manure into cash? Bennett Environmental is offering above-ground dairy digesters at no cost to you. These systems can also remove nitrates from your lagoons to help you comply with water board regulations. Our proven above-ground technology will generate income for your dairy into the foreseeable future. Because we truck the renewable natural gas off-site, your dairy can profit regardless of your location. Bennett Environmental, turning your wastewater liabilities into sustainable assets. Learn more at bennett-environmental.com. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. And a special thanks to our contributors this week, Kathleen Wolfley of Blooming and Associates with our market update, our awesome labor partner, attorney Anthony Raimondo, and Paul Souza, our director of environmental and regulatory affairs. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have questions, comments, or content requests for us, please send them to Darby, D-A-R-B-Y, at wudairies.com, or Melissa, M-L-E-M-A, at wudairies.com.
And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Seen and Heard on your favorite listening platform. Thanks. Have a great week, everyone. While West United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the West United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies' generous business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com.